Hello and welcome to the Family Planning Files, a podcast from the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide programming to enhance the knowledge of Title X and other family planning staff. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In today's podcast, which is part of our May 2021 Clinician Cafe, we'll be discussing the epidemiology of hypertension in women in the U.S. today, including prevalence, disparities among populations, and social and environmental factors that can contribute to behaviors that increase the risk of hypertension and hypertension-related diseases. Our guest today is Dr. Annabel Santos Volkman. Dr. Volkman is a cardiology specialist in the Chicago area and a professor of medicine at Rush University. She received her MD from Columbia University, completed her residency at the University of Chicago Medical Center, and completed fellowships in cardiology and cardiac electrophysiology at Northwestern University Medical Center. She has over 30 years of clinical and research experience, during which she has received multiple awards and has also founded the Rush Heart Center for Women. Welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Volgman. We're so excited to have you on. Thank you so much, Catherine. I'm excited to be here. To give our listeners an overview, what does hypertension prevalence among women look like in the U.S. today overall compared to, say, the past few decades? Thank you so much for that question, Catherine. Unfortunately, as our United States population ages, we are seeing an increase in cardiovascular disease and hypertension. In 2017, almost half of American adults over the age of 20 had hypertension. That's about 116 million people that have hypertension. And another statistic that's sobering is that in 2018, there were 1 million deaths in the United States that had hypertension as a primary or contributing factor to the cause of death. And unfortunately, only about 24% of people who have hypertension have it under control. So we need to do a better job as more and more people have hypertension to better control them so that they don't suffer the manifestations of cardiovascular disease. And What sort of conditions can hypertension contribute to or precede? And what does the prevalence for those conditions look like today? Unfortunately, there's a lot of people with cardiovascular disease. Unfortunately, it remains to be the leading cause of deaths. In the United States, cardiovascular disease prevalence in people over the age of 20 is about 127 million people in 2017. And half of these people have coronary heart disease or coronary artery disease. And about 16% are strokes heart failure about 7.4%. And most of these conditions have hypertension as a risk factor that can increase these events in people. So hypertension is a big contributor to all of these problems, heart attacks, strokes, and heart failure, and an arrhythmia called atrial fibrillation, which can uh, further increase the risk of stroke. What does hypertension prevalence look like across the sexes, so men versus women, and then of course, among the races, particularly of women, because most of our listeners are Title X clinicians who see mostly women. So Black women versus white women, or Hispanic and Latina women, Asian women, Native American women. What all does that look like today? Thank you for that question. Unfortunately, hypertension does not discriminate 
all of those races and ethnic groups do have a high prevalence of hypertension. Unfortunately, for African American or Blacks, they have the highest risk among the women. So Black women in some studies show that they have 54% of them have hypertension compared to 46% in whites. And in Asians, about 39%, in Hispanics, 36%, and in Native Americans, 38%. So unfortunately, we see a lot of hypertension all across the races, but there is something about Blacks in general, and as Black women have higher risk of hypertension. So you mentioned a little bit earlier the aging population. Can you expand on that prevalence and why it's so dramatically different and other ways prevalence is dramatically different, such as perhaps across income levels or geographically? So as people get older, the risk of having hypertension goes up. So we have prolonged a lot of people's lives. And so we see a lot of cardiovascular disease in older people. So we are seeing an increase in all of these risk factors and all of these cardiovascular diseases as our population ages. And unfortunately, the prevalence of U.S. Blacks is among the highest in the world. So we see that there are differences in immigrant versus native-born Blacks, which is a lot higher than the foreign-born Blacks. So there is some difference in whether you were born here or whether you immigrated here. And then what about income or socioeconomic status? Is there a big disparity in the prevalence there as well? Unfortunately, for lower socioeconomic classes, by either by income, occupation, and education, the lower socioeconomic status does increase the risk of having atrial fibrillation. So there is an association, especially in education. Education or lower education had a twofold higher odds of having hypertension. And this is stronger in women. So this is really interesting. Other things that can contribute to an association with hypertension is self-reported experiences of discrimination or unfair treatment, uh, particularly among the Black people. It happens in other races, but it is particularly higher in Black people, this discrimination causing an association with hypertension. As a matter of fact, the study in Chicago from the MESA study, which is multi-ethnic study in atherosclerosis, saw that a higher level of safety was associated with lower levels of systolic blood pressure in men and women, but a lower level also of diastolic blood pressure, but just in women. So there are some sex and race differences, even among the social determinants of health. So there is a pressure that we are seeing in social problems that increase the risk of hypertension. And moving on a little bit from demographic risk factors to behaviors, what are some of the behaviors that are considered risk factors or that can contribute to an increased risk of hypertension in women? Thank you for that question. I'm sure a lot of our listeners know this, but increased salt consumption, poor dietary habits, um, especially the Southern dietary pattern has been associated with higher risk of hypertension. There's a stroke belt that we see in the United States, which is the Southern states that has the highest risk of hypertension and strokes. And that's states like Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Arkansas, as far up as Tennessee and Indiana. 
and um, Kentucky have high risk of strokes and hypertension. They know this and, you know, they need to either make a decision to change their diet or increase their physical activity. That's another behavior that can decrease or mitigate the risk of hypertension. So increasing physical activity, I always tell my patients to just walk is the best physical activity. It doesn't hurt your joints too much and anyone can do it. You know, they are able to walk. They do it three times a day, 10 minute walks, three times a day would equal to 30 minutes a day, which is great. I I ask them to do that five to six times a week, which is heart healthy. That can decrease obesity and obesity can lead to obstructive sleep apnea, which is associated also with hypertension. You know, the old adage of eat right and exercise can really decrease the risk of hypertension as well. And of course, behaviors aren't formed in a vacuum. We are all products of our environment for better or worse. So what are some of the ways our social and environmental factors that we experience every day can contribute to those behaviors that may lead to hypertension in life? Well, stress is definitely one of those risk factors that is hard to measure, but can definitely increase the risk of high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease. And, you know, knowing that stress can lead to those problems, people need to learn how to deal with stress. It's not easy, but I tell my patients that we all have stresses and it's how you respond to that stress that can determine whether your blood pressure is going to go up or remain lower. Once you accept that this is a stress can cause my blood pressure to go up, I can either allow that or I can try to calmly accept the stress and figure out how to get out of this stressful situation. What are the ways that I can find to mitigate these risks or the stress that is causing my blood pressure to go up? So acknowledging the stress and learning how to deal with it can be a good way to decrease your risk of having high blood pressure. Moving into the clinic, shall we say, how can our family planning clinicians help address these disparities and help their patients address these factors in their own lives through their family planning practice? So glad you asked that question because I don't know if everyone knows that maternal mortality is going up on deaths from having babies is going up. And hopefully all the efforts that have been done by many different people is starting to make that go down. But it's incredibly important for family practice doctors to know that gestational hypertension and preeclampsia is a risk factor for future cardiovascular disease, especially women who develop a gestational hypertension and preeclampsia during their first pregnancy. They have two to three times higher risk of having chronic hypertension in the future compared to women who did not develop gestational hypertension and preeclampsia. So it is the role of doctors to take care of these women to find out whether they had hypertension in their first pregnancy. And if they did, they really need education about the risk of hypertension and how they can avoid hypertension. And these women need close follow-up. As a matter of fact, in Illinois, we just passed a bill to increase the follow-up of women who just delivered to one year instead of three months, because these women 
who had complications can develop cardiovascular disease in the future. And they need the education and the awareness of how to prevent those complications in the future. So I'm so pleased that Illinois did that and hopefully other states can follow. Fantastic. And where can our family planning clinicians go for more information? What are some of your favorite resources for clinicians who might not be as familiar with hypertension as you are to learn more and incorporate this guidance into their practice? I'm so glad you asked that because a lot of people do go to the internet for advice and never know what you're going to get. But one trusted website that I like is the CDC website. And there's a particular study or effort by the CDC called the wise woman. And you know, cardiologists love acronyms. And I like this acronym, particularly it's called wise woman. It's an acronym for well integrated screening and evaluation for women across the nation. Isn't that a wonderful acronym? That is so fantastic. (laughs) Whoever thought of that deserves an award. But anyway, this um, particular website and effort works with low-income, uninsured or underinsured women age 40 to 64, and they provide heart disease and stroke risk factor screenings and services that promote healthy behaviors. And it's a trusted website. And I really encourage women and practitioners to go to this website because I think they have really great advice. Unfortunately, our time is coming to a close today. But before we go, Dr. Vogelman, what would you say are your top takeaways for our family planning clinicians going forward? I always tell my patients, and I hope that your clinicians will also tell their patients to have their patients buy a blood pressure monitor and use it. And if they see that their blood pressure is greater than 130 over 80, that's considered high blood pressure, hypertension. Don't ignore it. Please seek advice and do all the necessary things that you can do to lower the blood pressure because it leads to heart attacks, strokes, and deaths, and it's preventable. So please advise your practitioners to advise their patients to buy a blood pressure monitor. I sometimes give these away because I do have access to some of free uh, blood pressure monitors. And if a patient can't buy it, I'll just give them one. And they just love that. But I tell them, you have to use it for it to work. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Volkman, and for sharing your time and expertise. Thank you, Catherine. It's my pleasure. For more content, including previous podcast episodes, search for The Family Planning Files or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For transcript of this episode, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning on social media on Twitter at NCTCFP, all lowercase, and sign up for our monthly newsletter, Clinical Connections, on our website. This training is supported by DHHS grant number 5FPTPA. 00-6029-03-00. The contents of this podcast solely represent the views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement of DHHS OASA and or OPA for the opinions described in this podcast is intended or should be inferred. 
Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of The Family Planning Files.